When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Misunderstood. I'm Rachel Yucatel. So I've known today's guest for over 10 years. We first met when we both took part in season four of Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. You guys met him when he joined the cast of Laguna Beach and became Elsie's bad boy boyfriend, better known to everyone as Jason Waller. Jason's pretty much grown up on television. He's been on and off our screen since he was 17 years old. We've seen the good and we've seen the bad. And he opened up about all of it. We find out he was how he was cast on MTV's Laguna Beach and how it changed his life immediately. And we also talk about who he was before he was famous. We talk about how real and unreal The Hills really was. And most importantly, we discuss how his struggles with addiction affected his life and helped him find his purpose. Probably the most important thing for people to move forward. We reminisced about our time on Celebrity Rehab, the friends we made, and how the experience transformed us. It was really the precursor for Jason finding his passion, working in the addiction space. Now he guides others on finding sobriety and the importance of mental health. I think Jason is really making a difference in this field because he comes from a place of understanding, because he's really been there. We talk all about that. We talk about recovery, addiction, um, and what's so misunderstood about it. He was so great um, to reconnect with him, and he was so great on the show. He's been in my corner behind the scenes for years, and I'm absolutely in his. So I'm so excited to share his story with all of you. So enjoy my conversation with Jason Waller. Jason, thank you so much for joining me from Nashville, Tennessee. It is such a like an honor to see you again after all these years. It's been a long time, Rachel. It's so good to see you, and I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I've been wanting to have you come on the show for a long time because I think the topic that you really cover, which is recovery and addiction, is such an important one. It's a universal one that um, everyone, I think, can be touched by if they are not struggling with something. They know someone who is struggling. And, um, you know, I, I just think it's a really important topic. But we're going to get into that. I've known you for many years, but something I don't really know because I've never asked you about is how you became the Jason Waller that everybody kind of knows. Can you start by telling me who you were as a, as a kid? Tell me about Jason that we don't know. Yeah. Okay. So Jason, as you don't know, um, I was a, as a young guy, um, you know, I'm the youngest of, of four kids. Um, I got two older brothers and an older sister, uh, was born and raised in Newport beach, California. Um, amazing parents who are still married till today. Uh, they just celebrated 50 years of marriage. Um, but had just a very amazing upbringing, you know, parents who were very loving, caring, compassionate, who instilled, uh, amazing morals and values, uh, in us. And growing up, I was a, an outgoing kid. I loved, you know, surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding, uh, love sports, love playing baseball. Um, it was just a very outgoing, outgoing individual. Um, and, you know, I'd really, uh, lost sight of who I was, uh, around 12 or 13 years old. Um, at that age, uh, I actually was, uh, diagnosed and struggled severely with OCD to the point where I'd wash my hands until they'd bleed. And, um, this is something that a lot of people don't know about my backstory, um, is when I was going through that, uh, you know, I seen every type of psychologist, psychiatrist you can think of, you know, and, and, um, back then, 
there's only so much, you, you know, at 12 or 13 years old, there's, there's only so much you could do or try to explain back then, you know, and when you're going through it. And when I saw those psychiatrists, I saw the therapist, you know, I was put on medication it helped mitigate the symptoms, but I never really dealt with the underlying issues. And so after doing all this work on myself, you know, I identified that I really, you know, I, I can see how I almost struggled going through addiction and all the different things that I did. I can see how I... I basically struggled with addiction way before I ever picked up the drink or the drug. And what I mean by that is as that young kid that I was explaining to you, the outgoing, you know, that loved the sports, loved these different things, was always a part of the popular group, you know, had a girlfriend, whatever it may be. I was able to divert what was really going on behind closed doors and living this double life. And so I had a lot of these insecurities. I had a lot of, you know, depression, anxiety, all these different things that were going on as a very young kid, which was was very challenging. But again, so going back to, you know, after seeing therapists, psychiatrists, taking medication to mitigate the symptoms, I didn't know how to communicate that. Even even my parents knew what was going on. But when you're 12, 13 years old, 20 plus years ago, right, the times are completely different. Mm-hmm. I did not know how to communicate that. I did not know how to express what was going on. And so as a young kid, there was a lot of stuff going into my, you know, adolescence, early teens, late teens, there was a lot of stuff that I was dealing with that was never really unveiled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I struggled even, even at 16, 17. So that's where that's, you know, fast, you know, streamlined into, uh, you know, ultimately struggling with addiction. And by the age of 17, I actually went to, to boarding school out in Provo, Utah. Prior to that, I actually went to a, a a wilderness program where you actually like, go out into the woods and you're out there for like 30 days to do some self-discovery. And then I came back to a, to a boarding school. And then, um, you know, from there, uh, I think, you know, part of that struggle though, really enticed a lot of the stuff for the show because, you know, I mean, at that young age, obviously I was dealing with a lot of underlying issues, but also masking that with alcohol and different things. So it created this unique perspective and or character if that makes sense. So, yeah. I'm curious if a lot of those things you went through starting at the young age you were talking about, 11, 12, do you think that stemmed from the fact that you had something wrong like this OCD or you think it's just like typical, you know, peer pressure, there's a lot of emotions and and physical things going on, you're changing. Um, I'm curious because we both have kids, right? And I I think it's Mm -hmm. a good conversation to have. Like sometimes it's not some traumatic event that somebody like can't get over um, in their childhood. Sometimes it's just growing up is hard. So what was it for you? A hundred percent. Well, after again, you have to understand I've done a lot of work over the years, right? So, I mean, we're talking about yeah. 20 plus years of work. So I've been able to actually identify. So the 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 long story short answer is I actually just found out a couple of years ago that I actually had pandas. That's where it's pediatric autoimmune. I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's actually where strep throat attacks a part of the brain that creates OCD. Um, so that's that's where really the OCD had stemmed from. Um, but prior to that, I mean, look, I'm, I'm pre-genetically disposed to addiction, right? I mean, like, look, I, I'm Cherokee, German, and Irish. I mean, when I came out of the womb, I should have had a stamp on my forehead saying, do not give this kid any, any form of substances. But, um, you know, I think there's definitely, obviously there's the peer pressures and there's the things that you go through. Um, but that was a really big turning point. And I really, even after all these years of, of, of work that I've done, I really can kind of like pinpoint now that that's where a lot of my, like, you know, when you start to uncover things where people, whether they have traumatic events, whether they, you know, whatever that may, may be that they've gone through, that was a really big piece of my life that I never really identified with. Because again, when I, you know, after I started taking medication, started going through those things, I kind of was like, ah, that's not the problem. You know what I mean? But like, that's where it really, that's where like kind of the root cause came from. And that's where after you know, all the therapy sessions, all the, the doctors and everybody I've met with, I think that's really kind of where a lot of this stemmed from was not properly dealing with or, or addressing those issues. And again, we did the best that we possibly could given the state and the time that we were in. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I'm sure there's, you know, there's other pieces that played into it. Yeah. They're, you know, just, I mean, just the pressures of, of growing up, especially in, in, you know, Southern California, there's a lot of pressures that come with that. Um, that definitely added to the, to the issues. Financial anxiety, anyone? Worrying about it does not help. Earnin does. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Earnin makes it so easy to. All you have to do is download the app and verify your paycheck. It's that simple. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. 
Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. Earn it empowers you to live life to the fullest, no mandatory fees and no credit check. You can join over three and a half million customers when you make Earnin a part of your financial routine. When I use Earnin, I get very excited because I have extra money to go on a much needed girls night out, use it for a last minute gift for the holidays or an unexpected trip to the vet, which just happened last week. So download Earnin today spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or app Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in understood under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Understood under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust member FDIC. Yeah. You mentioned going to a wilderness school and then going to Provo. I, I I also went to a wilderness school, so I know what that is. We have different sets of parents, as you know, because we did our show yeah. together. And I think you remember. And I remember your parents who are amazing. You, like you spoke about, grew up with very, you know, uh, involved parents who clearly cared about you. And I think you were going to go on your path no matter what. I had the experience, and I've met a lot of people who their parents didn't know how to handle them. And I think that happened with your parents a little bit. So they send you away to try and figure it out because they can't figure it out. And sometimes that backfires because those wilderness programs or those therapeutic schools, I don't know if the one you went to in Provo was one of those therapeutic ones, but for me, I felt abandoned. Like I felt like they didn't understand me. Nobody understood me. I was misunderstood. And that sent me down a different road. What, how, how did you feel about that? Well, it's, it's funny because, I mean, my parents being who they are and the way that we were brought up, they over-communicated. It wasn't like I was kidnapped in the middle of the night. Like there's, there's stories like that where kids are literally, t- you know, taken and uh, where we sat down. And, and honestly, for me, that's where like I could see, you know, some of the symptoms of, of addiction, right, or the, the lying, the manipulation, all those different things. I mean, I was kind of under some heat going through that process. So we literally sat down and we communicated like, Hey, what would be best, you know? And for me, I was kind of like, yeah, I'll get out of Dodge. You know what I mean? I think it would be beneficial for, for that. But I think ultimately it was really to take some of the the heat of what was going on just from bad grades and, and ditching school and this yeah. other things that were there. And I was like, yeah, that's, let's blame it on this. And so again, it, you know, when you're that young, you're so impressionable and, and you're just, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're impulsive. And so, uh, but my parents did a good job of communicating around and they were very supportive in a lot of those decisions that we'd made. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about how you went from there to getting cast on Laguna beach. So I, again, being in, I was in Utah when the show started Laguna beach, when it came to fruition and I'll never forget, I ended up getting a call, you know, by a buddy or whoever it was, just being like, you won't believe what's going on. They're doing a a show in Laguna beach. They're doing a a spinoff from the show, the OC, but they're doing like a, a soft scripted reality show. And I was like, no way. Like, okay. Like what a, what a trip. Didn't really think anything of it. Um, they shot the first season. It did well. Um, you know, and, and when did I came back, it? I think I like tried watching like the first or second episode and I never really got into it. Um, and it was, you know, just had there, it was, you know, having your friends and stuff on it was cause back then we, you know, that was, you only had cable television. You didn't have YouTube. You didn't have Netflix. You didn't have all these other things. So obviously it was like, Part of me was like, oh, this show's so, like it's lame, but it was also like, okay, it's pretty cool that our, you know that they're they're doing this here. And MTV back then was I was <laughs> it, it was it was legit. So, um, <laughs> but uh, after it came out, they they were doing a second season. They asked some of the cast like, hey, who should we bring back? Because you know some of the seniors that were on there they're gone now. So who who would be good to interview? And so my name got brought up multiple times. And again, just given. The current state, uh, obviously, when I went to wilderness program and I went to boarding school, it only had such a... You had some flavor to you. (laughs) It didn't have too much of a a healing process to it. So when I came back, I was still, you know, active in a lot of the behaviors and stuff that I was in. So when they interviewed me, it was literally, I'll never forget, went to the rooftop in Laguna Beach and, and did the interview and the rest is history. This holiday season has been jam packed. There never seems to be enough time in the day to get everything done. Something always falls to the wayside and usually getting a good meal is the thing that suffers. I started using Factor and I cannot tell you how much I love it. I get healthy meals and it saves me so much time. I can actually do my errands, take care of my daughter and enjoy all the holiday events. 
Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. You can eat well for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle while tackling all your holiday to-dos. There are so many great things about Factor. There's no grocery shopping, no chopping, no prepping, no cleaning up. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals get delivered straight to your door, and all you have to do is heat them up for two minutes and enjoy. The food is delicious, and they give you so many choices. There's Calorie Smart, Vegan and Veggie, Protein Plus, a ton more, something for everyone. And when you are on the go, they offer so many add-ons like shakes, smoothies, and juices. They think of everything so you don't have to. So I just opened my box yesterday, and I have to tell you, this the shakes are really my favorite. I'm so excited about them. They taste so good. I'm excited to use these meals. They're so quick and everything tastes so fresh. I'm telling you, it's never frozen. So it doesn't have that like frozen aftertaste at all. It's really good, you guys. My favorite thing is I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to go to the store. I don't have to prep food. It literally comes in a box and I don't have to burn anything. I literally almost burned the house down the other day making cookies. So this really saves you a lot of hassle. You decide what you want to eat. You open the package, you heat it for two minutes, and you are done. Honestly, every meal was delicious. The pasta, the grilled chicken, even the vegetables tasted fresh, and they were amazing. So head to factormeal.com slash understood50 and use the code understood50, that's understood50, to get 50% off. That's code understood5050 at factormeals.com slash understood50 to get 50% off. Enjoy, you guys. They ended up casting me pretty quickly. Who did you know on the current cast before that had recommended you? Uh, Kristen Cavallari, Talon, Torriero. Um, I knew Steven and Dieter. Um, so I knew like half of the, the cast. I mean, I, we knew everybody. Like, Laguna Beach was a very, very small school. So, I mean, we knew everybody. But there was some of the people on there were, were our you know, like close friends. So, um, yeah, that was who, who recommended. Okay. So now what age were you when this started? 17. Wow. So were you over, you were in boarding school and you came home for it or you were already home? No, I was already home. So I, I was at boarding school, came back, the show was out. And then they got the news pretty quickly that they wanted to, to, to shoot a second season. And then, and then I was brought on. Okay. So tell me what that's like to be 17 years old. And all of a sudden you're part of this hit TV show. Like you're growing up kind of on TV. <laughs> It was bizarre. Um, I mean, I'll never forget. I mean, my life changed overnight. I, I literally is when the commercials started coming out and the promos and, you know, back in the movie theaters, like when you'd go to go to movies, they would they literally run like trailers for it and stuff. And I remember going down to the gas station, like after it started coming out, and my car like got bombarded with people. And I was like, what the what the hell? Like, just didn't know what to expect. And and I was like, ah, okay, like this, I can get used to this, you know? And so, I mean, you take somebody who's got a, an overinflated ego with an underestimated sense of self-worth, you know, that really yeah. pours some fuel to the fire on it. And, um, <laughs> it was, it was a trip, you know, looking at how, you know, it, it cause it was just like, it literally, your, our whole life changed overnight. It was, mm -hmm. it wasn't like this drawn out process and the show had such a, such a following and it was, it was so successful, which is, it was, it was crazy. Well, and, and it was one of those, the first reality shows kind of that really stuck out, made it, people were obsessed with it. Right. And so I think that's really interesting that, you know, you got to be a part of it. Now there's so much talk about if characters were created, if it wasn't really reality, like what was your experience when you were on it? Did you feel like you were just living life and they were getting it on film or did you feel like you had to create a character? <laughs> It's so funny because everybody, like, I mean, after doing like Kristen and, and Steven's uh, Back to the Beach show, and like everybody really had a different experience. And so, like, there was a lot of stage stuff for some people, some it wasn't. For me, it's was, like, I feel like they had to get whatever they could because I was so hit or miss. Like, I mean, I'd literally be hammered half the time. And so, it's like, you know, they, they would just try to capture what they could. I mean, there was very, I mean, there was like scenes that we'd have to reshoot here and there. But overall, I mean, for, for me on Laguna specifically, I mean, it was pretty true to, to what you got. I mean, I'd say maybe 10% of it was, you know, there was edits and different things like that. But some of the other cast, I mean, they, they had like half their stuff was, was reshot or, or, or scripted. And so um, it, was, it was different for each. But the Hills, it started to get more scripted and um, scenarios and, and, you know, just uh, different things that they would set up were became more and more scripted. 
Is it weird to look back and watch some of those episodes? Do you ever watch those episodes, by the way? I had not. So I had not watched an episode for, I can't believe it was like 15 years probably. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Netflix picked up uh, the series just like within the last year. And my mother-in-law and my wife, like, we're like, oh, my God, it, like, the show's, it's on here. Let's, let's watch an episode. And they turned it on, and and we ended up watching it, and it was, it was brutal. <laughs> I mean, Why? I can't believe, I just, well, I, to be honest with you, I can't believe that show, I mean, the show seemed, like, kind of boring and lame to me. I can't believe that it was the, the phenomenon that it was. Um, and just, it was, I, it was definitely something that I wouldn't, I could care less to watch. Um, but it was also just kind of seeing, you know, the state of mind mentally, emotionally, and physically that I was in. I mean, after, you know, looking back, I can see how much I was really struggling and yeah. how unaware and how unattuned to it I was. I mean, it was very apparent that I was, you know, struggling with alcoholism and just, and just lost, lost individual. Well, that was my next question. Like, what was that like to look back and see who you are, were? Did you not even recognize that person or were you like, yeah, I, I know that guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I think both, um, you know, I did not realize how, how sick I was, um, Mm. because when you're active in it, you know, it's a disease of denial and you don't want to take ownership or accountability for a lot of the things that you do. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was aware of some of the, you know, some of the things that I was walking through, but to be able to physically see it, which is, is interesting having your, you know, your senior year documented or, you know, just, at that time in your life, I mean, you know, there's, you're, it's crazy because your parents, like my parents, at least, you know, it's like I had my childhood and my early teens documented, whether it was for sports, different things, but kind of after 13 or 14, you know, most people didn't have that. And it's something that we had that we could look back, which was, which is crazy. So, um, but seeing it, yeah, it was, I was, um, you know, it was, it was hard. It was, it was almost kind of hard to watch, um, yeah. seeing kind of the state that, that I was in and, um, because there was, there was so many opportunities to really get appropriate help and, and, and direction and stuff. But, um, you know, something I didn't grasp onto, which again, everything happens for a reason. Um, and so, but it, it definitely, it was, uh, it was definitely challenging to, to see some of those scenes. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you were kind of represented as like a partier, cool kid, hot guy, rich kid, um, you know, badass on, you know, on the show. Was there something going on in your personal life, though, that we didn't see that wasn't caught? Like, was that who you were at the time? Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, minus just knowing that I really struggled with alcoholism. I think yeah. that outside of that, that's you know, I mean, everything else that was portrayed was, was what it was. Um, but yeah, you you were seeing somebody who was, who was really sick. Well, and, and just putting you to the side for one second. I mean, what about the show do you think made it pop the way it did? It was like lightning in a bottle. It was like all of a sudden the show was, everybody was watching it. Obviously MTV was, and VH1 were really big at the time, but like that really stood out. Was there something that you think really made it stand out? I honestly have no idea. Um, I think this may be the lifestyle that was portrayed because the OC, the scripted show was, it was a pretty big, you know, success on Fox. And I think Mm -hmm. that being able to dovetail, I thought it was, you know, it's creatively genius to take a show that's scripted, that's doing very well and kind of portray that in the real life. And so I think Mm -hmm. maybe it was just more of, it was, it was, it was a thing for people to look at and, you know, I don't know, not, not fantasize, but it's just like, it was a glorified lifestyle, I think at yeah. that age. And I think, you know, I think it's something that, you know, young people, you know, wanted just like, I mean, as, as time has gone on, we have such a false sense of reality today, thanks to, you know, social media and just other outlets and different things. I think that was kind of like the first of its, of its kind would be my guess, but I have no idea. Right. So how many years did you end up living your life on TV? So God, we did Laguna season two, season three. We did the Hills. I did like the first, second, third season of that. And then did some random stuff here and there. I'd say like on and off for like 10 years. It was like on and off for, I don't know. It feels like it was, I mean, 
I'd say probably like 10 years. It felt like, I mean, on and off with this different stuff, you know what I mean? It wasn't consistent yeah. by any means. I mean, cause like I said, it was Laguna, it was the Hills. Then we did, you know, did this show celebrity rap superstar. And then we did celebrity rehab. And then, you know, there was obviously space in between, between the yeah. shows, but I'd say like over the course of 10 years. And then the Hills came back from 2000, you know, was it 19, 20 and 21. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was like, I'd say probably like a 10 year step. Well, before we get there, I mean, I, I, I asked the question because those are the formative years where you're getting like your first job and your job yeah. to be, you know, you were a reality star and you were getting paid. I, I assume well, or well enough to, you know, have that replace getting a real job. So when you finally were off the Hills, what did you, what did you do for a job? What did you think you were going to do? What's yeah. So, <laughs> well, look, I think that, you know, I think your greatest deficits can become your greatest assets. And so like when I was done with the TV side of things and when I really, you know, immersed myself into recovery um, and it's funny you bring that up because I think one of the saving graces for me was actually getting a job, having, you know, somebody having accountability, having a purpose, having a passion and having something to show up to. I actually started working with in the substance abuse space. So I, uh, worked for Mike Netherton. He was the president of Betty Ford for 25 years. He kind of took me under his wing, uh, started working with, you know, Dr. Drew kind of, again, was a, a very big mentor and, and, and took me under his wing as well as Dr. Daniel Hedrick. He was the head of Hogue and Mission Hospital. So I had these amazing mentors who just uh, kind of embraced me in early stages of sobriety. And, and I actually went and started working in, in the substance abuse space. I worked for a program called Northbound uh, recovery, which I think you, that we, we had some mutual friends, uh, go through there. Mm -hmm. Um, but I started as a, a, a recovery advocate where I basically was the liaison, uh, between the clinical team and the clientele. Um, and I built that whole, pro whole program up and I ended up taking over the, the alumni program and, and developed a whole activities program and kind of just really immersed myself into that. And then I started to go into marketing and I kind of grew within that space. Um, but I, I went in there like probably 90 days, maybe, maybe a little bit longer, probably, probably like, like 120 days of sobriety. Cause it was after celebrity rehab and stuff after we had met, uh, started trying to get my life together. And, um, uh, you know, I was in, I started doing that and I, I kind of, uh, really dedicated my life to that. And so go ahead. No, I was going to say, I just want to give it context that I have it here. By the age of 23, this is what you said, you'd been arrested over a dozen times and incarcerated for well over 100 days. You had already attended 11 treatment centers from Florida to Hawaii, been 5150'd and hospitalized over a dozen times. Like I'm trying to give context to people that don't, haven't followed your story, like what you yeah. really went through to hit your rock bottom to find solace or find change and purpose in, in the recovery aspect, as opposed to just going through the 12 steps and being like, okay, let me get away from this and find a completely different job. Um, so you really went through it as a kid. We met, like you met, what, like you said, at Celebrity Rehab, where were you at in your sobriety at that point? That's where, so I actually went on to Celebrity Rehab sober. Um, and I went in there and, um, it was cause it was interesting. I mean, going on there, cause I remember they wanted me to, to, to use, to go in there. And I was like, nah, it's not part of it. Cause I was actually in Florida at treatment prior to that. Um, and when I went in there, it was, it was crazy. Cause there was obviously some people in there that were really, really struggling and they were coming off stuff. And I, even when we were doing, getting interviews for that show years ago, I was like, it was crazy being in there because like, for me, it was like, even though we were on a show, it was like, I was like a background prop in the show, just watching all the chaos and the stuff that was going on because there was obviously people really struggling and going through what they were going through. And I'd say like that around that time, even prior to that, it's like where my real like commitment and journey, like obviously there were struggles and, 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 you know, relapses and stuff that happened within that duration. But that's when like, you know, that really started to shift. And I'd say like, I really entered into recovery, like July 23rd, 2010 is when my life really started to shift. Um, and, and again, when I started connecting and cause part of that process too, when I got that job, when I started working with them, like that's when I started to work a program, I, I removed myself from the entertainment side of stuff. I moved out of LA, went back down to orange County. Um, and I was in a place of willingness and I was in a place of, 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 of being open to taking direction. And I think the biggest piece to it was being able to get really open and honest, um, because that was my biggest, my biggest deficit was just not being willing to get open and honest with that. And so right. and once I was getting able to, rid of the ego or whatever. Yeah, I was, I mean, there was, you know, definitely becoming humble, um, mm -hmm. and looking at that, but yeah, the, I mean, something 
you know, to add on to what you'd stated from, you know, all the different treatment centers, the arrests, the, you know, the hospitalizations and, and things like that. I think everything on there was correct. I don't, I don't know that I was uh, in the hospital 12 times, but I mean, probably pretty damn close, but other than that, everything else is there. But the one thing that uh, my addiction drove me to is not only contemplation, but attempting suicide. And so I think that's, you know, one of the other pieces is like growing up, I mean, that's just how cunning, baffling, and powerful this thing is, is, you know, I had everything that society says is amazing, whether it's money, notoriety, access, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, I mean, I just had the most, um, you know, empty side. It was just so empty inside. And it's just gets to a place where you just you don't want to do it anymore. And it's just amazing. I think, you know, God definitely kept me here for for a greater purpose. And, and you know, I, I am obviously very well well aware of that today, just looking at what I do. And but yeah, it was, it was, it was a hellacious, you know, from 17, 18 to, I mean, even probably like, even all the way back to the 13, but I mean, it really got bad by like 17, 18 to, to 23, 23 years old. It was, it was challenging. Was it your experience that you had to hit a rock bottom or something that really was like, okay, I'm done. I have to make a, a change. Or was it the continual kind of, you know, falling that you were like, I don't want to keep doing this. Well, it's, I'll tell you what my moment of clarity was. I mean, cause look, I'd hit, I don't know how many more bottoms I could have hit. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think that, I don't think you have to always hit a bottom because unfortunately in this day and age, bottom is, could be death. I mean, this addiction is totally different today than what it was 20 years ago. Right. Um, yeah. That's mm-hmm. a whole nother story. But my moment of clarity was, I'll never forget this is after the, you know, all the stuff we just mentioned, you know, after the suicide and different things, I remember sitting in a therapy office with my my mom and dad, um, and again, you have to remember the, the family dynamic and the relationship that I had <clears throat> with my family and my upbringing. And um, my dad just looked across at me because I was, you know, I was struggling. And, um, you know, he looks over and he's just like, look, mom and I don't know what to do anymore. Um, you know, our, our marriage is, is suffering. Uh, the family's at just a complete disarray. Obviously, there's a lot of codependency in there. But, uh, you know, mom and I are, are lying in bed like two planks of wood just waiting for the phone call that you're dead. And when, when he said that there was, I don't know what it was, you know, I, I, it was literally a, a moment of clarity. It was like a light came through and I was like, look, I don't care enough about myself or my well being. I said, you guys will become my motivation. And that was like right around the whole celebrity. It was like around that whole time that this all started yeah. to take place. And that became the, the shifting moment where I'm like, look, I don't care enough about myself, but I, you know, I, I care about you guys and they became my motivation. And, mm-hmm. and honestly, that was, for me, that's what I needed. I needed something to hold on to like that. And it's, again, it's, it's different for everybody. Some people, it has to be strictly for them. Um, but there was enough, uh, connection with that where I held on to that. And I'd say by after like seven, eight months, my life obviously started to change and, and to get better. And, um, it's something that I ended up taking a hold of and, and wanted to continue pursuing for myself. And, you know, I ended up getting multiple years of sobriety after that. I I think that's actually a really interesting point you make because some people aren't at the point where they care enough about themselves and it has to be about, or sometimes it can be about, you know, caring that much about a child, a parent that you're going to hurt, whatever it is. You know, I remember, as you know, about when I was younger, my father struggled with addiction and he ended up dying of a cocaine overdose when he was 44 and I was 15 and they had asked me when I was, I think I was 11 at the time, two or nine or something to write him a letter for intervention. And I think the intention behind that was to get him to care about something else because he clearly didn't care about himself at that point, right? And didn't care if he died. He just cared about his addiction. So I think they were using me as a tool to be like, if you don't care enough about losing your life, care for this girl. And I remember specifically them asking me to say, I don't want to have to tell my friends that you know, I grew up without a dad, which almost brings me to tears because that's what happened. And he didn't, you know, take that so seriously. But, um, you know, I got to spend, as you were talking about with Celebrity Rehab, um, you know, a good three weeks with you. And we had some very interesting people in our group. Uh, um, I thought it'd be fun if we could talk about it because we actually yeah. haven't talked about it in a long time. Um, we had a total of eight people in um, Celebrity Rehab with us who are all great people. Unfortunately, Um, which I also think is very interesting. Two people are no longer here with us due to addiction. Um, Jason Davis and um, 
Frankie Lons, uh, who, you know, were such a, everybody was such a big part of our show, but, um, did you stay, I know you stayed in, t- in touch with, um, Jason, but were you close with him before he died? Yeah. Ironically, <clears throat> um, we, we reconnected, we, we, we'd stayed in communication the whole time, but we had, uh, actually gotten closest after the show that last nine months of his life. Um, we reconnected and, um, you know, it's, I'd, I'd started spending a lot of time with him and, and he was doing really well. And it's, you know, it's just, it literally, as you stated, you know, when they both passed it just, it gave me goosebumps because it's, it's devastating, you know, to see how this, how this takes away people. And, um, you know, yeah, I did, I stayed in touch with Jay and, and I, but I never stayed in touch with Frankie. And it's, it's so funny when that you bring them up because I mean, they, they literally, were, were the light of that show. I mean, I was, I was between the two of them. I was, it was literally the two on there that I, I, I've never laughed so hard in my entire life between the two of them from Jason going to snatching her wig off to her, just talking so much shit to him. And I mean, it was, they were so funny. Um, and it's, 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 uh, it's really, really sad that they're no longer here. Yeah, it is so sad. And I love them dearly. Um, I really enjoyed, I will say, I know that sounds weird, the three weeks that I had on that show. I was convinced to do, to do the show because obviously my name had become very popular at the time because of a little scandal I was in. Um, but the reason why I chose to go is because internally I had become like a recluse. The news was talking about me and creating a narrative for me that um, was very debilitating to me. And I didn't deal with that when I was there, but I, I dealt with, you know, what got me there kind of. And, um, when I sat with Dr. Drew, I didn't know what I needed, but I, you know, he convinced me the night before he said, listen, I understand you. Um, you know, you've made some poor decisions because you're struggling with a love addiction, which I thought sounded so dumb. I'm like, this is embarrassing. People are going on the show for real addictions that are killing them. And, you know, I'm not going to go on there and say that I don't have an addiction. And, but I knew that being in the same room with him, as you know, it's like, you're the only person there. Like you feel so, um, safe and understood and listened to. And that's what I really needed. So that's why I chose to do the show. And I got so much out of it. I dealt with with losing my father from a, co- a cocaine overdose as, at a young age and losing that sort of unconditional male figure very quickly and then losing my fiance in September 11th. And that, I mean, it really helped me. But not only that, it helped me to be in a house with seven other people that were struggling from addictions that I didn't really understand. I didn't know what that was yeah. like. And um, I enjoyed every single person, maybe with the exception of Janice because we got into so many arguments, but, um, but all in all, I thought it was great. People always say, Oh, reality TV is so scripted. That was not scripted. Did you think it was scripted? No, that's about as real as it gets. I mean, there's corners in every corner of the room. I mean, they, they literally just, I don't remember reenacting one thing there. I, I, I mean, I think maybe some of the voiceovers that we did, but I think everything that was, that was done there was, I don't think people were literally mentally or emotionally or physically in a place to be able to, to, to redo shots, you know, yeah. or be set up for things. I think it was, that was a, a very real experience. Right. And so we had, let's talk about who was on it. It was Leif Garrett who people yeah. might not remember, but he was an amazing singer and he was fantastic in this group. He really made the group. He kind of, even though he was the one dealing with like a heroin addiction, right? Yeah. Is that what he had? Yeah. He was like yeah. the glue that held us all together, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. There was and Jeremy, then, um, Jeremy London, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jeremy was very funny because he was coming off some scandal where he claimed he had been kidnapped and thrown into the <laughs> back of a car and forced to do drugs. And I was like, does that happen? <laughs> yeah, dude, I forgot about that. And we had Eric Roberts and we had Eric Roberts uh, was great. Yeah, he brought credibility to the show. Yeah, and he then, brought credibility. Right. And then Frankie, no one knew who she was, but they all knew who she Keisha Cole, and she was Keisha Cole's yeah. mom. But she was yeah. amazing. Who else did we have? Was that and it? And then we had Oh, and Janice uh, Dickinson. What am I saying? My roommate. It, yeah, Janice Dickinson, which she's doing fantastic. I actually reconnected with her recently and talked to her. She's, you know, she's, uh, you know, she's happily uh, married and she's, you know, she's doing the deal and uh, she's That's doing amazing. well. She had just started talking about dating that guy, I think, when we were doing the show. So he's the therapist, right? Or the psychologist. Yeah. Ironic, right? Yeah. <laughs> ironic totally ironic. 
what a what a trip. No, that show was was uh that would actually be a funny show to go back and watch. Like that's something that I could yeah. I mean it's even because of Jason and Frankie, that's something I might have to pull out and, and well I think it's on Amazon DVDs. Prime in case anyone wants to watch it. I think it was season four or something. Um but I you know, even after and I want people to know this because after we did the show, I even though again I wasn't dealing with something to be sober from really, I went into a sober house with um who was in it? Jason. Davis and Jeremy, I think was in it with me. And then I rented a house and, and they all came and lived with me. And I think you came for a little bit with your friends. Uh, we came and... Yeah. Chicken. <laughs> I, yes. I, oh my gosh. What a trip. I, I remember. Yeah. Cause you guys all ended up, ended up going to that, uh, that's that sober living in Malibu. And then after you ended yeah. up renting a house and we, mm-hmm. it was like off down below Wilshire or something. I remember. Yeah, yeah it, that's right. And everybody was hanging out and you guys were my boys. And I was like the sober one, like trying to be like, no, you know, Jason left one night and it's like, I'm going to go use heroin. And we all like, we're like, no, we got to go find you. It was like, we were yeah. doing our own version of the show privately. But, um, but I yes, do want people that... to realize that this was like a real thing for us. And we kept a real, we kept real relationships and we, we, we were holding each other accountable and um, everyone ended up going their separate ways later. I moved back to New York or whatever, but we all, I think, have a special bond because we did go through that and it was very real. It was very real for me. I know it was real for you, even though you weren't necessarily struggling with, you know, relapsing at that time, but I think you did struggle a little bit after, but you were given some tools to really move forward, right? A hundred percent hit the nail on the head. And, and that's where I, like, that's where the, I think the transition really started to happen though, is even with some of the trials and tribulations, that's where the, the road really, really started. Cause that then allotted me the opportunity after, after the show and stuff, that's when I went back down to Orange County. And then that's when I connected with Mike and Paul and Dr. Aim or Dr. Uh, Dr. Hedrick and, and, um, uh, stayed in communication with Dr. Drew and that's where my life really started to shift. But that show, it was, it was kind of the, it's funny. It was like Laguna beach, the Hills celebrity rehab. You can kind of see yeah. how that, that whole thing arced. Right. Exactly. So let's talk about, um, a little bit more about recovery now. And for people that, um, are struggling that have struggled that just want to like, you know, hear you talk about it. What have you found in all the years of going through this on both sides of the coin? What do you think is the most important messages to get out there? Well, I think like in the beginning, it's going to be some of the stuff that I just stated. I think for me and, in my, stages of recovery and really entering into that process was I had to be a hundred percent honest with myself. I had to be a hundred percent open. I had to be a hundred percent willing, uh, because look, the best of my decision makings weren't working anymore, you know, and I needed to be in a place where I was able to, to take direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, that was, that was one of the biggest things is, is just being open and honest. And I think for those that are struggling out there, I think the important thing is, is, is you're not alone. You know, I think when you look at this, I mean, look, addiction is the leading cause of death in America for 50 year old individuals and younger. I mean, this is something that we've, that we've, you know, a lot of people struggle with and, um, you know, and through hard work and dedication, you, you can, you can get through the other end. And, you know, and I even think for, for people that, you know, have the stigma or, or, you know, you know, it's changed and a lot more people are open to, to the conversating around it, but there's still a stigma around addiction, you know, as, as people struggle with that. I think, you know, people need to understand there's no such thing as recreational use of, of heroin. There's no such thing as recreational use of meth or, you know, drinking a bottle of vodka or, or, you know, doing what these people have to go through. So I think it's really an, an important to, for people to understand that, you know, look, this is, this is a disease and it's, it's primary, it's chronic, it's progressive and it's fatal if it's untreated. Um, and look at what it's done to our society and just look how many people are, are struggling with it. And so, um, again, there's, there's so much to talk about on it, but again, as if people are in it right now, I think the best thing that you can do is, is open up and talk to somebody about it and, 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 you know, ask for guidance, ask for direction. And I think that's the thing too, is so many people have struggled with it that it's like, even when I'm out and I, I'm having a conversation with somebody, you know, just talking about sobriety or my recovery or something that, it, you know, I'm involved in or I'm doing, they're like, oh my God, no, my, my brother's, you know, in recovery right now. Like, do you have any insight? Like, it's just amazing how much more open yeah. people are coming around it. So I think starting the conversation, you know, I think that's, that's really important as, as a, as a talking point. How would you say that people know that they have a problem? Like, you know, does it have to be that you're blacking out or you can't? parent or you're not showing up or is it like, you know, enough is enough and too much is too much. Like how would you categorize that? 
So I don't, I, when I talk to people now, I'm not like, I don't ask them like, Hey, are you an alcoholic or Hey, are you an addict? You know, I, I look at them and I have them, you know, process one really important question. And it could be with drugs. It could be with alcohol. It could be with work. It could be with relationships, whatever it may be. I say, Hey, look, I want you to think about this and, and ask yourself is, is this adding or subtracting from this one life that you have to live? And I want you to sit with it. I don't want an answer right now. I want you to, to literally process that. And then you come back and tell me if that's something that, you know, that you honestly can say that it's adding to your life or if it's it's subtracting. And yeah. 99% of the time when I'm having a conversation around somebody that is that that I'm that is struggling, it's they come back and they go, This is obviously not adding to my life because it could be there's so many different types of alcoholics. There's so many different types of addicts. You know, there, I know people that that drank once, once a year and they could be qualified as an alcoholic. It's it's because it's not what they're consuming. It's what, it's not how much they're consuming. It's, it's what it does to them when they drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, there's so many different layers to this. It's such a multifaceted thing. And, um, again, it's because people can quantify like, you know, I, I, I don't get in trouble by the law. I, I, you know, I only drink, you know, three, you know, a few drinks here or there, but it's, it's more of what is it doing to you? And that's the way I look at it. You know what I mean? Cause there's, there's a social norm around it. And I'm not somebody that's against people that can enjoy themselves. My wife drinks, you know what I mean? But it's, it's also, um, it doesn't debilitate her life in any way, shape or form. Um, you know, and, and I also think people that don't struggle, like when I met my wife, uh, as a prime example of somebody that has no dependency on alcohol, she's like, I'm just going to stop drinking for a year to support you. Like that's what a normal person should be able to do. It's, mm-hmm. it's, they could take it or leave it. Um, but again, mass media and, and the way that we, we culture looks at things and, and obviously it's, it's, it's worked because, you know, they associate having fun and everything is, is, is around being, having drinks and things like that, which unfortunately is, or, you know, it's not the truth. Uh, you can have a, a pretty incredible life without it. Yeah. So, I mean, in my experience, you know, I have found that there are things that prevent you from being able to function properly. And that's, it doesn't actually, like you're saying, doesn't have to be drinking excessively or whatever, but I had a conversation with you maybe four years ago now where I was at a point where I had lost all sense of self. I did not know where I was going. I was depressed. I needed help and I didn't know what kind of help I needed. And you helped me get into the meadows. And, um, it wasn't because of substance. It was because I was dealing with like, um, almost like a midlife crisis, but because of so much PTSD I had from different experiences I had had that I hadn't dealt with. And so I kind of want to talk about that, like mental health for a second, because people can get to a point where they're not necessarily abusing, but they're like making choices that are just not conducive to living a, a happy life. And I got to that point and you were the one who kind of were the, you know, gave me a lift up. And, um, I think after that, it's up to you to continue to make those decisions or take the tools that you get and figure it out. But I just want to also be clear. It doesn't have to be, you know, we're not just talking about people that are cocaine addicts, heroin addicts, alcoholics. It's for people that can't function because something is going on and they're not on the right path. Do you agree with that? Well, a hundred percent. I mean, mental health is a very debilitating you know, place to be, especially when you're struggling with things. And I was actually going to kind of flip the script maybe from a high level and see, you know, you wanted to maybe bullet point some of those things that you were going through to bring context and light to this, because yeah. it, like you're saying, like, I mean, whether it's alcohol for me or whether it's, you know, emotional stuff for you, it's, it's, it kind of same painting, different colors, you know, you're in a place where we're at the same spot of, 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 of loss of direction. Right. I mean, yeah. and, and we're at a place of, 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 of losing ourselves. And so I was thinking maybe you could even, you know, share just a little bit on that and we can talk about that. Yeah. But it, just while I'm thinking about it, it all comes back to what happened or what are you going through that you're not dealing with that's making you feel these ways or making you um, act out in a certain way. And I hadn't at that point, um, it was like 2019. I had just closed my business, which was a huge sense of my identity. I was having a very hard time, like figuring out how to get over a stigma that had, you know, I had with my name for many years and I could not find my way. I just was really having a hard time, you know, following through making decisions. And, um, so my point is, is that because I hadn't dealt with things that had happened years before, I think it was preventing me from living in the present and figuring out how to walk into my future in a very clean, 
clear-headed way. And I, you get to a point, and I can attest because I was there those days with you on the call, like, Jason, I don't know what to do. Like, it's bringing me to tears. I don't know what to do. I need you because if I don't have you, I have, I'm going to sit here and like just deteriorate. And I wasn't necessarily, I mean, I may have been, I think I might've gotten to the point where I, I didn't know any other option. I was like, why am I even here? Um, and I needed that like hand to hold and someone to be like, okay, this is normal. You can get out of it, but like you need, you need a little help and that's okay to get help. And I think there was a lot of shame that went with it and just not understanding. And I think that's like normal. People need to know that's normal. No, I mean, I think the biggest thing that you're touching on too, and, and is when you, by expressing vulnerability, it creates humility, right? And so when you opened up and when you started to share those types of things with me, it allowed me to be able to be, to, to remind me where some of the things that I've gone through and to create that sense of connectivity with you to know that you're in a safe place and that there's, there is a way out. Um, yeah. And we get lost, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter if we're 12, 13, you know, 35, 40, you know, 60 or 65. I mean, it's, it's people go through different, different scenarios and different stages of life and, and things happen. And so I think like with what you're talking about though, what I'm taking away from it, like one of the biggest things for you to get you to a place to be able to get guidance and direction and, and the help that you needed was you opened up about it. I think that's like, again, going back to the first indicated step, right? Um, but after that, I mean, I'd be curious as well, kind of what was the big, the big, changing factor for you after, you know, we had communicated after you'd gotten help, what was like kind of one of the big, the big aha moments for you to break through that? I think I had to do a lot of work on why I was living in such shame, like why I had such self-loathing and the self-worth wasn't there. And also I struggled at that moment because I didn't have something tangible to be like, I'm drinking too much, so I need help, or I'm doing X, Y, Z. So I felt like I didn't have a, a label on it kind of, yeah. but when I went back and I had people to talk to and I, you know, started to read some books that were really important and, and talk to people that had been through it, you know, I feel like everyone acts out in their own way. It could be addiction. It could be sex addiction, love addiction, you know, um, shopping addiction, whatever it is. But when you, you get to the heart of it, it's about something you're not dealing with or something you feel bad. For me, there was a lot of shame that went with stuff and, um, I couldn't move through it until I forgave myself. And until I was like, listen, okay, you can't live in the moment that happened in the past. You can, you know, atone for it. You can make amends with it, but you have to move forward. You cannot keep living in the past, like reliving this moment. It's terrible. So no, I there's had to a do big, for myself. there's a big difference between dwelling on the past and, 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 or learning from it. Right. And I think yeah. when you dwell on it and you sit in it, I mean, you, you stay stagnant, uh, versus learning from that opportunity. Cause look, all great change proceeds through chaos. And I think when you can look at that, understand what's happening, uh, and, and have direction, you know, out of there, like how I live my life today around things, especially when things come up that are challenging and, and there's trials and tribulations. I, it's called the triple A modality. It's awareness, acceptance, and action. If you're not aware of what's going on, you can't accept it. If you can't accept it, you can't take action. And so mm. I implement that in my life on, on, on a daily basis. Um, but as, as I continue to grow and it's, it, as I've continued to grow, it's funny to see, you know, as I'm still growing, it's stuff from the past will resurface that I have to work on to continue to better myself. Right. Because yeah. again, is, is as I'm unpacking certain things will start to, to surface. And, and so it's, it's a process, you know what yeah. I mean? It's, it's not like, and as, a, and as our, both of our good friend, Tim story has said many times, you know, I, really was an example of somebody who was living as a discount version of myself because I couldn't get out of these mistakes I had made. And I really needed to do the work to figure out, you know, that, you know, to figure out that it's okay that you make mistakes. You have to make mistakes. You have to learn from them. And that's like part of life. Like if everything was great and terrific and you made no mistakes and you were perfect, you wouldn't know the difference, you know, and you, uh, you have 100%. to learn from them. Um, but also I think it's really hard for people, um, when they've been doing well and then they have a setback and they're like, oh my God, I can't start over. I made all this headway and now it has to be day one again. And I think that's, that also creates a lot of shame in people. It creates a lot of self-loathing in people, but I, I feel like it's important for people to know that that's like part of life and that's okay. Um, and, and it's okay to learn from those mistakes as long as it gets less and less and less. And then something we learned in or I learned in celebrity rehab that is 
part of AA is that you just have to show up and you have to take it day by day. You can't just like assume everything's going to be better for the rest of your life in the future. You have to literally live for today. And that's what I learned from that um, experience at the Meadows at, you know, being on Celebrity Rehab too. And then, you know, having conversations with people like you or Tim Story um, and getting myself back on track um, and believing in myself. I mean, you know, realizing self-worth, I think is so important and, and finding your purpose. I have, I've found that once you find your purpose, things get much easier in life and it's so hard to find it. But once you find it, it's like, almost smooth sailing, you know, a hundred percent. I mean, look, a, a setback is the greatest opportunity for growth. Um, you know, it's something that, that I've learned and, and it's something that is uh, true to, to my life. I mean, it's funny, all these things that I've gone through in my life have allowed me the opportunity to find my purpose and my passion. You know, it's like my, my mess has become my message. And, um, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, all those things I experienced and all the things I had walked through, uh, were for, for me to help identify what it is I was going to do down the road. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm, I'm so grateful for, for everything. I mean, look, I wouldn't want to relive it, uh, by yeah. any means. It was a very, a very, very trying time, but I'm very grateful that I made it through it, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, that I'm on the other end to be able to, to share about it, because again, as if, if I'm able to relate or connect this to one person, that's, that's, that's my job is done, you know? And, and, and I feel like I'm able to do that on a, uh, you know, on a, a, a daily basis. I feel like that's something that I I'm very fortunate and, and, and grateful that I have the opportunity to be able to do that and be able to share my experience, my strength and my hope and, you know, have it be able to connect or relate to somebody so that they can do it for themselves. I'm curious if more people come up to you now, for the work that you're doing now and connecting with you that way, or if they're still talking to you about episodes <laughs> in the Hills or Laguna um, and wanting to talk to you about that. I get a lot more people that come up now for the work I do now, Good. which is, right. which is awesome because it's like, I mean, you know, it's, it's by no means is it what it used to be, but uh, you know, when people there's, there's obviously people that are still fans of the show. Um, mm. um, but it's, it's amazing to see that, you know, more people come up and just, they're even even if it's a related to the show, they're just like it's amazing to see how you've turned your life around, or you have such a beautiful family, and yeah. and just it's 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 those types of things, which which is awesome, um, you know. But uh, I love what I do today, and and I love the work that I do, and I love being able to help people. I mean, there's nothing greater than you know than, in giving back and not looking for anything in return, and so. Uh, I think even and with probably, like, even and probably with, being able to witness the change in in people you touch, that's got to be really rewarding. It's the most incredible thing. I mean, even, even with you, like it just four years ago, the phone calls that we were having, which, you know, again, is a very, a very, um, vulnerable place, but to see where yeah. you are now, it's, it's incredible. And to be able to witness that on, you know, people literally are, are have, have lost everything lost, you know, think of what you can think of and to be able mm -hmm. to see that journey from day one to, you know, 30, 60, 90, six months, a year out, if they stick with it and to see how their life literally starts to develop and form and transition again, it's, it's amazing. Um, yeah. there, there's nothing better than that to, to see the growth. You mentioned, um, earlier that you've gotten to work with some of your mentors, Dr. Drew, some of the other people you mentioned. Now you're involved in something called change your brain foundation with Dr. Amen. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. So now I, um, <laughs> through all these years of, of doing, Worked in, in substance abuse for, geez, like 12 years. And um, after, again, doing more work, I still yeah, still see a therapist on a weekly basis and have for years. And, uh, you know, as more of the uncovering and discovery is, is started to come up, I can see, again, going back to how we even initiated and started this conversation today, that a lot of the stuff that I struggled with were, were mental health issues and things. And so... Um, I got, uh, more, more interested in, and involved around that. And I had the, uh, opportunity to connect with Dr. Daniel Amen. I actually did his show scan my brain. Um, you know, I think it was about like a year and a half ago. Now we ended up hitting it off connecting and, um, uh, ended up becoming, becoming buddies. He asked me to host, uh, his carpet for him and uh, Tim and I to Tim story and I to host his carpet for his, uh, his big gala that he was doing for the change of brain foundation. And, um, uh, so we did that and then, you know, so a little bit of time had gone by and then I started talking to, to the CMO over there, Christine Perkins. And they're like, Hey, would you have any interest in, in actually, you know, running the foundation? And so, 
uh, I took that on and, but it's been absolutely incredible to work with somebody like Dr. Amen, who's really, you know, changing the way that we look at mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's ending mental illness through a revolution in brain health is the way that they look at that. And I mean, he's, he's changing the way that we look at it. I mean, it's, it's crazy when he brought it up to me, you know, that, that mental health is one of the only medical professions that they don't look at the actual organ that they treat being the brain, right? So if you have, you have, you know, heart disease, or if you have something wrong with your lungs or your kidneys, they're going to do an MRI or a CAT scan, uh, on that actual organ, uh, versus mental health. All they've done for the last 150 years is cluster, cluster symptoms and throw medication at it. Um, and so what he's done and and is focusing on is actually on the brain scans and spec imaging and and being able to help people uncover and discover what it is that they are going through and the issues that they're facing to have the best course of treatment when they come out. Um, so he's the one that actually identified that I had pandas, which is, is incredible. So when I did his show, he was able to uncover that. Um, but yeah, it's been awesome working there. The, the three things that we focus on at the change your brain foundation are, are research, uh, education and scholarships. And so the scholarship piece is, is awesome for those that are struggling, but don't have the means to get the help that they need. We provide comprehensive assessments, brain scans, diagnosis, and treatment plans for these individuals to, to get them on the right track and on the right course to, to, to help, you know, deal with what they're struggling with. Right. That's amazing. Um, I know we've talked a lot about this, but what would you say is like one thing that the most is the most misunderstood thing about addiction or recovery. For me, just thinking about it, I would think that one of the things is that, you know, a lot of times what you talked about earlier, there's a stigma that goes with it, that these people are sick, they can't be helped, they'll, they'll always have some problem to fall back on. But in my opinion, these people should not be counted out because they are strong, resilient people. Um, so for you... I'll tell you, what... tell you right now is, is people think it's a choice. It's mm-hmm. not like I woke up and I'm like... I can't wait to see how I'm going to fuck my day up today. I'm going to, you know, ruin this relationship, crash this car, go burn this building down. You know, and there's that, there's a much deeper conversation to that, right? Like right now, actively arresting the disease, completely in stabilization. Like, you know, I have the, right now for me to make a decision to go drink, yes, that would be a, a choice that I'm making. But when we are active in addiction and you're in the depths of it, you lose all the rights to make your own decisions. I mean, you literally, neurologically, I mean, you can't function or, or operate correctly. And so for people to think that it's a choice, Louie, come here. My dog's getting excited. Um, for people to think that that it's a choice is, 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 is um, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions. And, and I'm just curious now that you talked about this. When you're having a really bad day, you, Jason, what do you do to choose something different as opposed to be like, fuck this, I'm going to go drink. So great question, Rachel. I think the the biggest thing is, and I learned this through having kids is, is I don't allow myself to get to a place like that because I believe cons- uh, structure and consistency create safety. And so I have a program on a daily basis that I do. Um, and so, I mean, just from a high level every morning, you know, when I wake up, I do a morning meditation I do my prayer, read my Jesus calling book. I do a gratitude list of three things I'm grateful for, not only what, but why I send that off to a few other guys that I, that are uh, sober as well. Um, then after that, I, I end up going to the gym. Sometimes I'll, it's some, some days it's, it's Bible study for me. Um, again, some days during the week, once a week I have, I have therapy, but I have a, a pretty regimented schedule that I don't deviate from. Um, mm. And then I go about my day. And then, and then again, as this stuff comes up, I reach out to individuals. I talk, I communicate. Uh, I have, you, you know, have a, you have a network that you've created of really good people. Uh, I have really amazing mentors that I have in my life. And then, you know, but also to, to end my day is after I, I go through this is you know, one of the biggest things that I love doing is, is actually taking an inventory of my day and identifying not only the areas, uh, you know, that I, that I was wrong and that I needed to improve upon, but also identifying the things that I did well. Um, and so once I complete that though, and I actually finish that list, I put my head to that pillow and that day's over. And so when I wake Mm -hmm. up the next morning, I have a fresh start. And so it took a long time to, it takes, you know, it's, it takes, it takes time to, to put that together. But Again, that I want to be very clear. That doesn't mitigate or you know uh, take away from me having a horrible day. But that foundational setup allows for when stuff does shit hits the fan. I'm in a much safer place to be able to deal with it yeah. and be in a place to have the tools and stuff to do that. Because if I don't have those things in play, because look, relapse is also a part of my story. I mean, after having four and a half years of sobriety, I went out really gnarly uh, for on and off for for. for 
two, three years on Adderall. And there's a whole, there's, we don't have time to even talk about that, but I, I can look back and I can see when I'd relapsed all the things that I had done to get me to that place, I stopped doing. Mm-hmm. And so like now it's, it's something that's a non-negotiable and it's something that like my, my sobriety, God and sobriety for me have to be my number one priorities. If I don't have those in order, nothing else falls into place. If that gets deviated from everything else is lost. And it sounds to me like that clearly helps you become a better person, but I can see that probably sets you up for being a better person for other people, a better father, a better husband, a better son, because um, that allows you that, you know, that path to really, to really continue on that as opposed to deviate and not be reliable to those people. And being reliable, right. I think, is most important um, to them. My last question to you is, would you ever do another reality show, especially now that you live in Nashville? Um, you have all these, you know, fun, famous friends over there. You guys could do a whole nother version of oh, the hills in Nashville. Oh, God. I'll let the bill. You, you know, no, I, I, the only other type of TV show or thing I would do is if it had to do around mental health or addiction, like that's the, probably the only thing that I'd ever do again. Um, it's, I don't know. I just feel like I'm in a place in my life where that's, if it was something to do with that, I, c- I could get involved, but to, to redo like Laguna or the Hills or do different things like that. I, I, I don't think that I would do that again. Okay. Where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you, if they want to ask you more questions, if they want to learn more about recovery? Best place is probably Instagram, which is just Jason Waller. Awesome. And you read your DMs? I do. I do. Okay. I try I try as best I can to get back to them, but it's sometimes it's uh, overwhelming. That's awesome that you're accessible to people if they want to reach out. So that's amazing. Jason, thank you yeah. so much. I'm so happy to reconnect with you. I hope we stay in touch, you know, privately. I, w- I would love to. And the next time I come to Nashville, I'm coming to see you and finally meet your beautiful wife. Tell her I hundred percent. Thank you for having me. And your child. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Love you. Thank you so much for listening to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or want to reach out? Email us at info misunderstood podcast at gmail.com. That's spelled M-I-S-S understood. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time. Misunderstood.